Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Glad you're with us. My name is Tim Fox. I'm the pastor here. Uh, welcome, especially if you're visiting today. We are continuing in Matthew, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8. If you're using one of the blue church Bibles, that's page 813. Uh, one of the prominent features of Jesus' ministry uh, that we tend to particularly latch onto is his physical healing. Uh, he going around dealing with people's physical ailments and sicknesses, even raising some people from the dead. Uh, you'll often see on church websites, churches talking about Jesus having this ministry of, of physical, meeting physical needs and drawing parallels from that about how we should today be concerned about meeting people's physical needs around us, which is true. Uh, but another feature of Jesus' ministry, maybe even more prominent than his physical healings, is his exercising of demons. Everywhere he goes, he's battling demons. Uh, you don't see that very often on church websites today about how we today should go around battling demons. And it's not because they're not real. It's because many people, and effectively many Christians, don't really believe in them. Uh, We are today looking at Jesus exercising demons out of two men. Uh, Sometimes when I come across the demon passages in the Bible, I will uh, kind of defend it. I'll kind of explain, well, you know, I know a lot of people don't believe in this or think this is silly or stupid. Uh, I'm not really going to do that today. If you're visiting, if you're not really sure about demons or angels or spiritual beings, I'd be glad to talk to you after the service. Today, I'm just going to take it for granted that they're real and that they are very powerful and very evil. But let me know if you want to talk afterwards about kind of more foundational things. Let's read the passage, Matthew chapter 8, starting at verse 28. And when Jesus came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, They begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your name is a refuge. Your people run to it and are safe. Teach us again today as we see Jesus' victory over the demons that we can run to you and find safety from all kinds of evil. Help us, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the last year or so, I've come across or I've heard about a couple of people who said that until somewhat recently, they did not really believe in God, they did not really take God or religion all that seriously, but that they had begun to do so in the face of evil so disturbing and pervasive that they started to think that there must be some kind of evil, personal, invisible force at work behind it all. And that caused them to start thinking about God a lot more seriously. 
The Bible tells us that Satan and his evil spiritual followers, demons, that they seek to sow deception and destruction and division everywhere they can. That they do all of it in hatred for Jesus and for his church and for his creation. To prepare for this sermon, over the last couple of weeks, I've been asking various people, not all of them Christians, I've been asking various people the following question. Compared to five years ago, do you today find it more or less plausible that our world is influenced by Satan or demons? Nearly all of them have said more. I don't have special goggles. I didn't take a special class in seminary that gives me special insight into where and how the devil is at work in our world. Uh, But if you're like me, you sense a darkness so thick that it cannot be merely explained by human agency. Mass shootings, political corruption, endless warmongering, High levels, growing levels of suicides, addictions, and overdoses. Pervasive propaganda, blatant tyranny through the alliance of government and corporations. Marriage and family in decline, while in the name of compassion and health care, children are being openly sexualized and disfigured and murdered. The Lutheran pastor Diedrich Bonhoeffer Uh, reflecting on 10 years of Nazi rule in Germany and soon to be arrested for trying to assassinate Hitler, wrote this. We have been the silent witnesses of evil deeds. We have become cunning and learned the arts of obfuscation and equivocation. The huge masquerade of evil has thrown all ethical concepts into confusion. He goes on, evil appears in the form of bright good deeds, historical necessity, social justice. And above all, he says, it appears in the form of the failure of what he calls the reasonable ones. Those who think that with the best of intentions and in their naive misreading of reality, that with just a bit of reason, they can patch up the structure that's come out of joint. And he asks, in such circumstances, who stands firm? Our passage is here to help us stand firm in the face of evil, and particularly demonic evil. Many of us are troubled and scared and overwhelmed, not just by the spiritual evil happening around us in our world and in our society, but even in our very lives. Some of you could share stories about things that you knew were from spiritual agents of darkness. So today I want you to see how the text shows us Jesus' power over the demons. You might remember that we are in a stretch of stories in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is demonstrating his authority after having declared his authority in the Sermon on the Mount. A couple weeks ago with his stilling of the storm, we saw Jesus mightily ruling over the chaos of the natural world. But now as he and his poor disciples have finally made it to the other side of this lake, 
we now see Jesus mightily ruling over the chaos of the spiritual world. The story has three pieces. The first one is in verses 28 and 29, where we see Jesus undaunted. Jesus undaunted. He arrives with his disciples on the far side of the Sea of Galilee. This is an area that's dominated by Greek and Roman culture and religion. It's rife with pagan degeneracy and superstition. We hear that as soon as he gets there, as soon as he steps off the boat, two demon-possessed men meet him. Uh, The idea here is not that they happen to bump into each other. It's a confrontation. They are marching out to battle with him. Uh, What we translate as demon-possessed, this kind of double hyphenated word, is actually in Greek only one word. It literally means demonized. It means that the men are being powerfully influenced, tormented, even in some sense manipulated and controlled by demons. Uh, The text is silent on all kinds of things that we might be wondering about. It's silent on why or how these men became demonized. Uh, It does not tell us whether or not they discreetly bought a Ouija board at Goodwill a couple weeks before. But instead, the text is focusing on the destructive effects Not the causes, it's focusing on the effects of their demonization. Now the first thing we're told is that they live among the tombs. Uh, This is first of all a way of telling us that the demons have driven these men into social isolation. Because of their profound fear of spirits and of death, pagans built their tombs far away from their cities. So these men are cut off from society and from relationship. Satan always seeks to divide people and to divide communities. But it's not just that they're isolated. You can be isolated in lots of places and in lots of ways. Even more than that, the fact that they're living among the tombs shows us that they're deathly. They are a kind of zombie. They're barely living in the midst of death all around them. Elsewhere, Jesus says that the devil has been a murderer from the beginning. He seeks to spread death everywhere he goes, not just actual physical death, but also the smaller deaths that foreshadow it. Disorder, decline, decay, depression, whether it's emotional or mental or spiritual or physical. You can see this demonic chaos, not just in their environment, living among the tombs, but also in their own behavior. We're told that they are very fierce. Uh, The word here is used elsewhere to describe hostile, wild animals. And so we're being told that these men have become feral. They've become savage. And so again, you see that the devil and his minions seek to degrade, to degenerate, to debase. They love to take God's beloved creation, especially humans, and try to turn them against our own nature. To turn us twist us into working for our own destruction. Uh, One of the other gospel accounts, when it tells us this story, tells us that these demonized men would continually engage in self-harm, that they would cut themselves with rocks as an expression of the demons and of their own hatred toward themselves. We're also told that because of all this, nobody could pass that way. Literally, it says that no one was strong enough to go on that road. The demons have not only turned the chaos of these men's lives against themselves, they're also turning it against everybody around them. 
And it's not just that it's mere chaos, just random, all kinds of wacky, crazy things they're doing. Did you notice that it's a chaos that's directed toward a purpose? It's a chaos powerfully being channeled against the harmony of life and of work and of society itself. And so it's left everybody around in this state of terror and weakness. Two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus' power over a physical storm. Uh, That may not have meant very much to you, given that in the last 2,000 years, we have come up with all kinds of amazing ways to protect ourselves from natural chaos. But outside of Christ, our world and our society remains just as vulnerable to spiritual chaos, which is something vastly worse. You see here that no one can do anything about it. Not these two men themselves. They can't help themselves. Not the wider community. They can't do anything about it. They're not strong enough. They and we are helpless in the face of spiritual forces consumed with hatred for God and for his creation and for most of all for us. So you have here the battle lines drawn. The demonized men march out for war with Jesus and they begin with a blasphemous insult. Uh, They're not just speaking to him. They're not just striking up a conversation. Uh, We're told that they scream at him. They say, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? They're first of all saying, what are you doing here? You do not belong here. We've all had the experience of running into somebody unexpectedly, but this is a clash of bitter enemies. They're saying, leave us alone. You should not be here. For the first time in Matthew's gospel account, Jesus is accurately addressed as the son of God. That's who he is. That's the correct title for him. The demons know who Jesus is. Demons have great theology. But it's not a statement of adoration. It is not a statement of submission. Knowing God is something far different than knowing about God. Uh, Something like how when people protest against the police or against politicians, the demons are using Jesus' title as a statement of disdain. It is precisely because of his title, precisely because of his identity and his rule as the almighty son of God, that they hate him so much. That's why they are saying, son of God. Jesus is a threat to them. He is a threat to the things they love. Now, why are they surprised to see him there? It's not just because Jesus is in a pagan area. Uh, All throughout the Gospels, you see Jesus battling demons all over the scrupulously orthodox areas of Palestine. They are surprised to see the Son of God because the world is their turf. Because the world is their turf. In the Incarnation... Jesus has dropped behind enemy lines. Throughout the New Testament, Satan is described as the ruler, as the prince, as the God of this world. The Apostle John says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The world is described in one place by Paul as this current evil age. And in another place, he describes this world simply as this darkness. Uh, insofar as the state and society and the economy are opposed to God, 
The book of Revelation describes all of it as Babylon, a dwelling place for demons. When tempted in the wilderness, we heard this a while back in Matthew, when tempted in the wilderness, Jesus did not correct Satan when Satan offered him all of the power and the glory of all the kingdoms of this world. That does not mean that every problem or every sickness or every sin is caused by demons. It does not mean that humans are not responsible for what they are and for what they do. But since Adam and Eve rebelled against God, God has allowed Satan and the demons a limited but still very dangerous and destructive amount of leeway in influencing and harming this world. So in a sense, this world belongs to Satan. It's ultimately God's world, but it is currently occupied by the enemy. And so here the demons are angry. They're shocked to see that the Son of God has invaded what they insist is still theirs. But they understand that their time is limited. They correctly understand. Again, here's some good theology from demons. They correctly understand that final judgment is coming. A lot of people in our world don't believe in God's judgment. They don't believe in God's wrath. The demons do. They know. So they spitefully ask Jesus if he's come here to torment us before the time. They understand that with the arrival of Jesus, the final judgment, Jesus' personal sentencing of God's enemies to endless punishment in hell, they understand that with the arrival of Jesus, that that torment has now been brought forward in history. The end of history has invaded the present time of history. They have suddenly, if you're into video games, the demons have suddenly met the final boss way earlier than they thought they were going to. And they know they're going to lose. Jesus, is, Jesus hasn't even said anything yet. Jesus' bare presence in this world is already God's judgment on its evil and on its darkness. They hate Jesus, but at the same time they understand that they are powerless to resist him. And so we move from Jesus undaunted now to Jesus undefeated. Jesus undefeated. In verse 31, they beg him to cast them into a nearby herd of pigs. Pigs, of course, are the paradigmatic filthy animal for the Jewish law and the Jewish people. Now look at verse 32. Jesus says to them, go. So they came out and they went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Jesus speaks one word. It means something like, get away. Jesus does not do what Jewish and pagan exorcists would do at the time, uh, and which today some Christians still think you have to do if you want to deal with demons. Jesus does not go through this ritual of learning something about the demon, figuring out the demon's name, figuring out where the demon came from, uh, figuring out what kind of powers the demon has. Jesus does not go through saying certain phrases... He does not go through complicated rituals. Just like Jesus calmed the storm merely by speaking, so now Jesus conquers the demons merely by speaking. God's word is mighty. God's word is mighty to save us and to save our world from overwhelming, inescapable spiritual evil. Now, what's up with the pigs? I'm sorry if you really like pigs. 
the text is not really interested in explaining to us or justifying to us uh, why Jesus sent uh, the demons out of the men and into the pigs. Jesus didn't have to do that. He could have sent them straight to hell if he wanted to. Uh, but as God himself, remember Jesus demonstrating his authority over his creation with the storm? What kind of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? As God himself, Jesus has every right to do whatever he wants with any square inch of his creation, even if for a time he has entrusted some of that creation to us to take care of for a while, whether it's your pigs or your kids or your house. Jesus can do whatever he wants with it. Uh, One point here, I think, is that God and Jesus are far more concerned about the welfare of people than they are about the welfare of animals. But at the same time, we are also meant to see, I think, that the death of these pigs is a real loss. The demons are bent not only on destroying humans, but also on destroying the animals that God created and God loves. But most of all, the demons' destruction of the pigs is meant to show something about us. It's meant to show something about humans and where their priorities are. Jesus began undaunted. He remains undefeated. But now, and very ominously, and perhaps surprisingly, you see that Jesus is also unwanted. Jesus is unwanted. The pig herders run off to tell the whole city what's happened. The inhabitants come out to meet Jesus, and they beg him to leave, not just their city, but the whole entire region. The words for meet and beg are the same exact words that describe how the demons marched out against Jesus and how they had pleaded with him to hurl them into the pigs. In both cases, Jesus does what someone is pleading with him to do. Except in this case, Jesus is not conquering evil. He's tolerating evil. Jesus says, you don't want me here? Fine. See you later. Jesus does not argue with them. He does not plead with them. He does not rebuke them. He gets in his boat and he leaves. These people would rather have swine than a savior. Jesus is causing too much trouble. He's interfering too much with their lives and with their economy. It's not hard to imagine the same thing happening today. Now, what if Jesus, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, what if Jesus came to downtown Austin uh, and he lovingly delivered a couple of people from demonic oppression by sending the demons into the dog park? You have the chihuahuas and the poodles and even the golden retrievers frantically rushing off the Congress Bridge to their watery deaths. How many people there in downtown Austin would say, Jesus, thank you so much for delivering us from this spiritual darkness. We couldn't do it ourselves. Thank you. We know people would hate him for it. You see here that the citizens show no regard for how these two poor men who had been so tormented by the demons have now been set free. They don't care. We know that in many ways, Matthew told us, in many ways, the citizens of this region had been harmed and inconvenienced by the demonization of these two men. But you see here that at the end of the day, 
they would have rather have just left these two men alone out there in the graveyards than to have Jesus come start messing around with the status quo. They say, not in my backyard. Get out of here. Jesus comes and he offers life and order and salvation and freedom. But all of it comes at a real cost. And many people are not willing to bear it. We would prefer our misery. We don't want God. We don't want his gifts. And sometimes God's judgment on sin looks like him just letting us continue in sin. He says, okay, do it. That's his judgment. Do I need to say this morning that you should not be like these people? In case you're wondering, the answer is no. Don't be like them. Instead, God calls you this morning to welcome Jesus' disruption of your life. To welcome Jesus' invasion of this evil world. It's going to cost you. It's going to ruin a lot of things that you thought were secure, that you thought you deserved. But take comfort in the fact that Jesus rules over all of the darkness of this world, all the darkness in your life. You don't need to be afraid of demons. The crucified and the risen Lord Jesus is victorious over them. If you trust in Jesus, the fiercest spiritual enemies cannot ultimately harm you. Not because of who you are, not because you're really good at praying, or because you've memorized lots of the Bible, but ultimately because of who Jesus is, and because you're in him. Jesus is your refuge, your fortress, your strength. I know how dark the world is. In a way, it is incredibly overwhelming and even depressing. But take comfort, because with one little word, Jesus casts off all the forces of evil and he jealously watches over his people to protect us and to preserve us in the midst of the shadow lands. Take comfort, but also take courage to fight against the powers of darkness. When the New Testament talks about how believers can and should resist spiritual evil, it does not commend for us some kind of dramatic spiritual ceremony, some kind of great, bold, you know, spectacular stand against the devil. Uh, in many ways, I think the spectacular exorcisms of Jesus and the apostles were unique to their own situation in the history of how God has invaded this world. But instead, when the New Testament talks about ordinary Christians fighting demons... It talks about it in a very ordinary kind of way. It tells us that we are to resist the devil with prayer, with the promises of God's word. We fight the devil in community and in worship with God's people. We do it by continually revisiting and receiving God's grace as they come to us through our baptisms and the Lord's Supper. Listen to how simple this precious promise is from the Apostle James. It's almost unbelievably simple. He says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. That's it. Just resist him. Take Jesus to the devil. He can't do anything to you. Take comfort, take courage, and be confident. Be confident in Jesus. Jesus is the one who's, at whose name and word every hellish beast must tremble. He's the son of God. He's come to free us from all the misery 
of our spiritual bondage. You can be confident in him. Let's pray. Jesus, we rejoice in your victory over the devil. Forgive us for the ways that we have ignored the spiritual realm around us, the ways that we have assumed that the physical things of this world and its comforts and its pleasures are all that matter. Teach us to see that you are Lord, not just of earth, but of heaven and of all things under heaven. And Jesus, most of all, help us to see in your victory over the devil, your victory over his claim upon us. We thank you that in forgiving our sins, you've freed us so that we don't have to be a slave anymore, that we can live for you in joy and in peace and in confidence. Help us, we pray in your name. Amen.